I'm going to begin this evening with a great quote, quote from Kalu Rinpoche. You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you understand this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Now, remember the first time I heard that quote, my response was, Huh? There is, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. What he's saying is that we live in, on the surface, we live in this uh, superficiality, in the appearance of things. But there is a reality, and the interesting way he puts it is, you are the re- that reality, not separate from, there's not something out there that's wise and has the potential to wake up. It's right here. And this is at the core of the Buddha's teachings, the fact that we can wake up if we come out of this trance of delusion and see things as they clearly are. And what I want to talk about tonight is this core problem of delusion that we all are subject to. Usually in the teachings, it's uh, said that the cause of our suffering is tanha. The second noble truth is that the cause of our suffering is tanha, or craving, wanting. But if you look at this problem of suffering a little deeper, I think you'll see that really essential to it, perhaps more inherent to our suffering, is this factor of delusion. Because if we weren't deluded to begin with, we wouldn't think that craving after stuff would make us happy. Getting the things we want, experiences or objects, would actually do it for us. Somewhere underneath is this basic misunderstanding of how things work and what, how we can actually really find happiness. The Buddha began his teaching of the Eightfold Path that we've alluded to just briefly in other talks, this depiction, this map of uh, the way all of our practice can unfold, how the path unfolds, with right view, with this essential understanding of the way things are and knowing that is the way out of suffering. And his definition of right view, his definition of seeing things the way they are, includes knowing the Four Noble Truths that we've talked about. There is suffering, the cause of suffering, and the possibility of the end of suffering. It's knowing the three characteristics very deeply, intimately, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, and understanding the workings of karma. Once This is how we begin the path with right view, and then all the other wholesome factors can follow on. Of course, the path isn't a linear thing. We don't, we don't fortunately have to perfect our understanding of those things for the rest of the path to unfold. But some recognition of these factors are essential for us to know where the path is and how to practice. The opposite of right view is obviously wrong view, amicca ditti. And unfortunately for us, there are many more kinds of wrong view than there are right view, and so much easier for us to stray into them. And it can almost be said that any 
kind of wrong, a wrong view is any kind of view that we hold on to, that we get fixed into, that we identify with, can become wrong view. This delusion is one of the three root causes of suffering. We've already spoken a little bit about aversion, the other root cause, I mean, about um, tanha or desire, the other one is aversion. So we've spoken about greed and aversion quite a bit as one of the, as some of the kalesas, the three torments of mind. And they appear in the hindrances. We often give talks about working with difficult emotions that includes variations of greed and aversion. So they're really very central. But we don't tend to talk so much about delusion. And so I wanted to redress that imbalance a little because, as I said, there's a way in which it's so central to our experience and definitely to our suffering. And it's so pervasive. Any time we're a little out of touch with our experience, any time we're not seeing the truth of the Four Noble Truths or the Three Characteristics, when we're identifying or holding on to views about self, we're caught in delusion. And so this is a a very common factor of our experience for, for many of us. Any time we're sort of fundamentally not here, not directly in touch with our experience, delusion is operating. And you can really see how these three forms of um, kalesa, greed, aversion, and delusion, are all, again, strategies to avoid suffering. I spoke a little bit about that in one of my earlier talks, all the confused ways we try to find happiness in ways that can never really bring us happiness. And the kalesas are all also a manifestation of that. In aversion, we push away in, to, to, to avoid suffering. When, when the wanting mind is there, we try to hold on to. And the deluded mind avoids or doesn't connect, doesn't know what's happening, wants to stay in its ignorance to not really know. We've stressed again and again how important it is to work with these torments of mind, the kalesas of greed, aversion, and delusion. And it's not because we're just pessimistic and like to ha- see you suffer as you roil around in in looking at these difficult states of mind, it's really to acknowledge that for most of us, most of the time, the wholesome factors of mind can't actually arise until the torments of mind are somewhat at bay, are somewhat diminished. That creates the space for the beautiful qualities to naturally arise. Now, often these beautiful qualities of peace or calm or joy or gratitude or generosity, they can arise spontaneously. But if you look in your experience, you will see that there was necessarily some absence of these torments of mind. So it's really important to bring this consciousness to these areas so we recognize them when they're operating, but also to create this potential for the beautiful qualities of mind to also come in. One of the reasons it's important to hold in your consideration this kalesa, this torment of delusion, is because it's really like a chameleon. Chameleon's that 
lizard that takes on different colors depending on its surroundings. And delusion is like that. It interweaves itself into so much of our experience. Greed or aversion tend to be much more clear in their presentation. That force of wanting, lust, desire, uh, all of the different objects it can take up. But we can know that experience fairly clearly. Aversion in all its array of irritation and and, uh, ill will and hatred and uh, anxiety and worry and uh, go on and on and on in all the ways it can manifest. But we can potentially bring mindfulness to those experiences. They have a clarity to them. But delusion is this more stealth-like kalesa. It winds its way into different facets of our experience, and its very nature is to confuse us so we don't know that that's what's operating. We can often think that we know what's happening, or that we are in touch, or that this is the reality of a situation when it's not. So important to highlight it so that we become more aware of the way it operates. One of the commentaries on the Buddha's teachings is called the Vasudhimaga. Translation is the path of purification. It was written in the 5th century by this um, scholarly master, Buddhaghosa. And it's huge. And it's quite an amazing book. I can't say I've read it all, but I've read chunks of it. because lots of information about different practices and techniques. It's very, very detailed um, exposition of, of Buddhist practice and doctrine. One of the sections in this book talks about how the three kalesas manifest in what are called character types. And this is a very simple kind of Buddhist psychology. You know, in our day and age, we've gotten used to a lot of very sophisticated ways of looking at the mind and and how it operates. This is very simple, but in its very simplicity, I've actually found it very helpful. And what it says is that these three kalesas of greed, aversion, and delusion tend to predominate. One of them tends to predominate in each of us. So we can be of a greedy temperament, or an aversive temperament, or a deluded temperament. Now, of course, we all have each of them in more than enough doses to to keep us going. And at different times, one or the other might be more predominant but we usually find that there is one that is our more default mode, the way we habitually react, especially if we're pushed a little, if we're a little tired or a little um, uh, out of sorts, this is what will come up as a habitual pattern. Another teacher in talking about this said something helpful. He said, uh, which type you are conditions your response in, uh, when you hear about them. So the aversive type often says, I hate these character types. They really limit me. I think it's a very bad system, and I don't, they don't apply to me. And the greedy type says, I want to know all about them so I can discover everything and figure them out and really work with them. This is really exciting. And the deluded type just says, what type am I? <laughs> so as I'm talking, people naturally tend to start wondering, which one am I? And 
can sort of feel there's going to be a stamp laid upon you at, at the end of this talk. And believe me, that's, that's not the intention of highlighting them in this way. It can be helpful to have some understanding of your tendencies in this way, but not to see them as um, the, the uh, be-all be and end-all of you know, who we are. Of course they're not. It's just one map, one very simple way of looking at our common hu human tendencies, and only to use them if you find them helpful, only if it gives you some sense of um, tools to work with. For me, I found them helpful because it actually depersonalizes a little bit my own tendencies and the tendencies of others as I see these manifesting to just kind of understand, oh, that's why this person is acting that way, or that's why I might be responding. Oh, they're just being aversive. And instead of being blaming or someone at fault, it's just knowing that these habitual patterns are being triggered in myself or in another. So use them if they're helpful. Please don't feel that we're trying to lock people into boxes and, and limit you in any way. It, it's just a tool if it's helpful for you. In this uh, chapter on the character types, they go on to talk about um, why it's useful to know this as meditators. And they proceed to describe the various types of meditation and um, environments for meditating that people should uh, in, uh, bring about for themselves. And at first they describe, give some descriptions of how you can tell which type is which. And um, I always think in reading them, the Buddha Gosa must have been the greedy type because they kind of get the best press. You'll see as you go through as we go through this, but it balances on it balances out later on. So this is a description of the different types. The greedy temperament walks carefully, puts her foot down slowly, puts it down evenly, lifts it up evenly, and her step is springy. Aversive temperament walks as though she were dragging with the points of her feet, puts her feet down quickly, lifts it up quickly, and his, her step is dragged along. Deluded type walks with a perplexed gait, puts her foot down hesitantly, lifts it up hesitantly, and her step is pressed down suddenly. So again, this is not an invitation to next time you're out in a walking period to go out and try to be determining who's what, because I actually find these descriptions, they're a little coarse, and most people don't walk anything like these descriptions. But you can get some sense of where they're going. The stance of a greedy type is confident and graceful. That of an aversive is rigid. That of a deluded is muddled. Likewise, in sitting, greedy type, spread his, greedy type spreads his bed unhurriedly, lies down slowly, composing his limbs, and sleeps in a confident manner. <laughs> when woken, instead of getting up quickly, he gives his answer as though doubtful. Aversive types spreads his bed hastily anyhow. With his body flung down, he sleeps with a scowl. When woken, he gets up quickly and answers as though annoyed. Deluded type spreads his bed all awry and sleeps mostly face downwards with his body sprawling. When woken, he gets up slowly saying, huh? So, as I say, a little bit of a caricature. 
it's pointing to something that you might identify with. And it goes on to all these different things about how they sweep and eat, and you know, they're messy or they're clean, etc., etc. But the point is, as I said, not to put ourselves into boxes or to try and analyze other people, but just to use it as a way to understand why our tendencies tend to be so habitual, why we act in these very predictable ways to things. And one of the ways we can tell, the simpler ways we can tell um, which type we might tend towards, is when you're confronted with a new situation. This is like the blank canvas. You walk into a room you've never been into before or be introduced to someone you've never met before. Is your immediate response looking for what's good, what you like, what's beautiful in the situation or the person, or what doesn't seem quite right, what's missing, what's not there. And, of course, the deluded type is, have you noticed anything at all about the situation? <laughs> in the, uh, the Sudimaga, the payback of these different types comes when Buddhaghosa des- describes the various types of meditation habitats that are suitable for the different types. And so for the greedy type, this is abbreviated, there's a very long description about this. The greedy type, who was the one who was so confident and graceful, etc., etc., should live in a decrepit shack, splattered with dirt, full of bats, bleak, threatened by lions and tigers, bed and chair are full of bugs. (laughs) Garments should have torn off edges with threads hanging down, harsh to the touch, soiled and hard to wear. So you can kind of get the sense what they're trying to do is balance the tendencies. And if you have this tendency to wanting everything to be beautiful and lovely and isn't this delightful, then sorry, it's the opposite for you. Whereas the aversive type, who didn't get such good press before, was is invited into a well-proportioned, brightened house with various kinds of paintings adorned with flowers, canopies of colored cloth, pretty sweet-smelling, makes one happy and glad just at the mere sight of it. So some retribution there. And the deluded type, I think this is interesting, deluded types are advised to have a place with a view that's uncluttered so that the mind doesn't get too busy with things. And that's something that the deluded uh, people that I know really say. They can become confused in a confined space. And it should be beautiful but very simple. This is what's appropriate. So this evening, if you want to go back and rearrange your room a little, bring in some bats and some dung or some colored cloth, might just be the ticket. For me, as I said, what was helpful was depersonalizing it a little, just to see that these are traits that run quite deeply through all of us. And I actually used to think I was a deluded type and was very happy thinking that, you know, because I could see I had trouble making decisions. I didn't like to upset people. I didn't like confrontation. And I had a a, a fairly even temperament. I have a bit of a reputation for equanimity. But um, Guy convinced me that I was an aversive type. It's one of the reasons we have helpful spouses is to point these things out for us. And I had to admit he's probably right because I do have a tendency to, you know, use the sword of wisdom perhaps a little too harshly at times. Um, 
And I can be critical, uh, you know, or wanting things to... No, he says. Should I have said that more strongly? That's the trouble with teaching with people who know you well. Barry, let me tell you something. You don't know Carol, then. Anyway. I still have plenty of delusion, perhaps about how much of it, how aversive I am, but it just helps when I see my reactions to things, to situations. If someone tries to suggest something new and I see my mind just go, no, I don't want to do that, or that's not going to work, to just be a little more spacious, a little more receptive. So it's kind of helped me to work with this pattern and also in working with other people who have the same or different types. And important to remember also that each one has a really positive side to it. Each one, when it brings, when mindfulness or a more awakened quality is brought to it, can actually shine in, in beautiful ways. Uh, the greedy type, they're usually very generous, they're, they're, they love beautiful surroundings, so they're fun to be around, and they can have a lot of faith. That's the direction that they can move towards. The aversive type is really willing to look at what's difficult, to, to, to be with the shadow side or the, the challenging side of situations and, and name truths that mightn't be easy to come across. They have a lot of clarity and discerning wisdom. And they're who you want to go to for advice. I mean, you want someone who really knows the, the shape of things. And deluded types obviously have a lot of equanimity and spaciousness. They can really um, be very accepting of themselves and other people. And they're great to travel with, the best ones. You, know, you walk into a room and say, which bed do you want? They go, oh, I don't mind. Oh, well, I'll just take this one that has the light and the window and the clean coverings. <laughs> and of course, as I said, we all have all of them, not to, to limit or box ourselves in. The classic way that the Buddha talked about this functioning of delusion was in a teaching he called the Vipalasas which is a, a set of, a list of four ways that we commonly distort our experience, commonly misunderstand things, and see if you recognize them as I go through them. The first one is taking what is impermanent to be permanent. Taking what is impermanent to be permanent. Taking our bodies, our experience, our meditation practice, a sitting oh, I just had this most peaceful sitting. I'm just going to float through the rest of the retreat on this cloud of peace and light. Or, you know, full of restlessness. Oh, no, two more weeks or six more weeks of restlessness. Taking what's impermanent to be permanent. Taking what is inherently unsatisfactory, what is dukkha, to be as a source of satisfaction, as a way we can find happiness. And very related to the first one, all of these impermanent, fleeting things we hold on to. We think, oh, this is it. This is what's going to do it for me. This experience, this object, this person, this way of being, I'm going to hold on to it, and this is going to be how I'm going to find my happiness. And seeing self in what is without self, what is inherently not self, 
all the different ways we can hold on to, just for an example, the body. You know, this is my body, I am my body, I own my body. We look for solidity in this conditioned process that is our mind and body. And then the fourth one is a, a little more subtle, seeing the lovely in what is unlovely, seeing as unlovely what is lovely, asuba, seeing suba in what is asuba. Suba means beautiful. And this last one, the traditional practice to counterbalance, Heather spoke about in her talk on the first foundation of mindfulness, the 32 parts of the body is a, usually called an asuba practice. And that's where we investigate in this very direct um, way the parts of the body, such as the bones and the flesh and the marrow and the blood and the hair and the nails and the teeth. So we can see the impersonal nature of it and also lose the um, obsession we can have in its outer appearance by really feeling into its actual nature. It's quite a powerful practice to do. So I'm sure in, in the first three you would have recognized the three characteristics and that the vipalasas are taking whereas the three characteristics are right view, wrong view is holding on to the opposite of the three characteristics and then adding this last one, um, the asuba contemplation. What's important to see in all of these different ways that we can move into delusion, and stating it like this, you might all say, well, I don't do that. You know, I know things are impermanent. or I don't try to hold on to things. But we do it all the time. We get caught all the time. And to really begin to be willing to name that as a pattern, as a habit, just like it's helpful to name hindrances as hindrances, to not just sort of say, well, that's just doubt, but to really recognize, oh, it's a hindrance. It's going to actually block my capacity to be with my experience. In the same way, when we see that we're holding on to something and trying to make it permanent, to see it as a form of delusion, to see that that's what's operating. It's what just picks up our willingness to explore this terrain of delusion and confusion. But there are many ways delusion operates for us. As I said, this chameleon that, that has all of these different guises that it will appear in we can know or start to get a sense that it might be operating any time we feel a little bit in a fog, a little bit disconnected, a little bit unfocused, where we don't perhaps really know what we're feeling, that sense of a little bit removed from a directness and immediacy of knowing. Being deluded or having delusion be present doesn't mean that we're unintelligent. Doesn't mean that we're dumb or stupid. It's just this um, uh, confused way of looking at certain aspects of of our experience that prevents us from seeing clearly. It's it's actually quite an archetypal um, image of the absent-minded professor. You know, someone who's very bright but isn't quite in touch. And this is not a a new um, kind of stereotype. So I was researching this. 
you know, there's lots of um, examples of people who become so engrossed in, say, the world of the mind that they lose touch with what's around them. Uh, in Ovid, Ovid, in his Metamorphoses, he describes Daedalus, who's the one who made the labyrinth that they, uh, they got lost in and whoever it was went through with the thread. He made it so cunningly that he almost got lost trying to find his way out. And that's the great metaphors for what we do in our own uh, creations of the mind. You know, we make, make it so big and complicated, we get lost in it, even though we created it. And the philosopher Thales, it said he allegedly would go out walking at night with his eyes fixed on the stars, you know, astronomy and astrology, and as a result, he fell down a well. And again, it's just an example of what we do when we're so focused on out there or up there or something lofty, and we forget what's right here in front of us and can end up in trouble. I have a, a very good friend who's very bright, one of the brightest and most caring people that I know, but she's a classic deluded type. And, you know, I'm just always hearing stories that she will tell about herself of this manifestation. Sometimes she actually doesn't recognize that it's delusion operating, but one of the stories she told was out walking with her husband and complaining that her hands were really cold as they were walking along. And he said, well, don't you have gloves? And she said, yes. And he said, well, where are they? And she said, well, in my pocket. And it's that kind of thing where we have what we need to take care of ourselves, but we don't quite put two and two together. Oh, I could put the gloves on and then my hands wouldn't be cold. It can be as simple as that. And this friend, she's always so engaged in her uh, what's going on that we sometimes have to remind her to eat. Have you eaten yet? Sit down, take a break. It's just that movement of mind always involved in something else and not taking care of the basics. I've mentioned, I think, a couple of times this program that I'm involved in here at Spirit Rock called DPP, Dedicated Practitioners Program for Senior Students. And uh, a number of people here have been through the program. I know some are about to um, start it later this year. And these retreats that we do in DPP are interactive, so they're not like this. They're, they're um, study exploratory retreats, very experiential. And one retreat where we were exploring the Kalesas, we did it through this lens of the three character types. And one of the things we did was have a panel of each of the types. Mm -hmm. If you're used to the Enneagram, you'll know this thing where you get people of similar temperaments up on a stage and you have them talk about your, their experience. And it was really interesting to get each of the types up here, and then we would ask questions and see how similarly they responded to these experiences. So we did a panel of deluded types, about five, all self-professed. We didn't name anyone to the panel. They all volunteered to go up and would ask some questions like, how is it when you go shopping? And they all unanimously went, oh, I hate shopping, hate shopping. Can't go shopping unless I have a list. I get so confused and overwhelmed and what to choose. And there's 15 types of deodorant and 20 types of detergent. And I have to have a name and a list or else I just get so confused. And, and how are you when you have to make decisions? And they would talk about how difficult it would be for them to make decisions. And I remember one of the, the panelists um, 
in talking about his experience, said, you know, people are often commenting on how well-dressed I am and giving me compliments on my clothes. And because we'd been talking about shopping, he went into that story a little bit because people often don't like to go shopping. It's too confusing. And he said, the reason I can make it work is I actually have, what do they call it, a personal shopper. I go to the department store and this woman picks out suit, tie, shirt and says, wear this with this. And she puts it all on hangers and sticks labels on it, and he just has to pick it out of the closet, and he can put it together, and it works. He doesn't have to make any decisions. And so we went on talking about other things, and when it came back to him again, he said, I have to clarify a little bit of something that I said before. He said, I don't go to her and say, I need a new suit. She calls me and said, you know, it's time you came in and got a new suit. (laughs) So she just runs the whole show, and then it works. But it's actually interesting, this, this man has a very high-pressure job, one that really can have very um, extreme demands made upon him. He's, he's the manager of this big organization. And he said being a deluded type actually really works for him because when something happens, it's very dramatic. Because his emotions take a while to register, he can actually just be with what is and deal with it very clearly and coherently and, and without a lot of agitation. And it's only later on that night that he sort of realizes what an extreme thing he went through. But it actually helps him stay present while everyone else is running around a little crazy. So all of them have their benefits, have their strengths. So some more clues about how we can know when delusion is operating. Delusion is usually operating when we hold on to how we want things to be rather than how they are. I read the Talmud says, we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. It's really meaning we filter all of our experience through this lens, through our conditioned experience, and think that that's the reality of situations. So we try to make reality conform to what we think it should be, not what's actually there. I had a really good example of this just last fall. Last number of years, I've been going to the sister retreat center in IMS uh, in Massachusetts every fall and teaching a long retreat, six-week retreat with Carol and Guy, usually, other teachers. And uh, I like to hike and explore my surroundings. So I've been buying guidebooks and trail maps and things like that so that when we have days off, we can get out and explore. It's new terrain for me, uh, New England in the winter especially. And so I'm always taking people on hikes. And on this one we took, I think Carol and Guy were both there. I had this new book. And the hardest part of a hike is always finding the start or the first turn. Once you get on the trail, you're usually okay. But we found the the trail head and started walking. We're meant to take a right-hand turn. And, you know, then there are all these things we should start noticing. Well, we never saw a right-hand turn, but the whole trail kind of turned right with a little trail off to the left. And so we're kind of debating, is this a right-hand turn or is it the trail turning right? Must be it. There's nothing else. So we'll go with this and we keep walking. And then it says, on the left, you'll pass a swamp. And we're kind of looking, well, it's a little damp over there. That's, that could be called a swamp if you're imaginative. And then a little rise and some pine trees. Well, 
it's going up a little and there's a pine tree, isn't it? You know, and we were trying to fit what we were seeing to what would be in the guidebook. And I'm always very loath to turn around. So I was convinced that sooner or later, somehow or other, this would be the right trail. So we kept walking and walking and walking. And it was getting, I, even I had to admit, further from what the description was telling us we should be seeing until eventually we knew we were wandering we don't know where on this trail and finally found some people and said, we were meant to be on this trail. I said, oh, that's way back there and had to turn back. And it was just so interesting to see how we all kind of colluded in this oh, this is this, um, that could be that, and wanting to match the reality to what we wanted it to be. And I see how we do that in our practice, too. We have one little bit of experience, and that means this about us. Or perhaps this is the beginning of that story coming on, and trying to map our experience, and seeing again and again it actually is so hard to know where you are in your practice. And if you find yourself doing that, just to realize that it's better to let it go. It's, it's so hard to actually know where you are on this map of meditation. Another way you know you're dealing with delusion when afterwards you have the thought, what was I thinking? <laughs> or what were they thinking? You know, I I see this in myself sometimes where you just get caught in this mindset and when you're in it, you're so lost in it. Or even if it's just a a thought that goes through and you realize how crazy is that? Again, a small example. I think Carol reminded me because Carol was talking in one of her talks about a time at IMS during this long winter retreat where all the yogis would start ordering from L.L. Bean and all these packages would start arriving. In the, in the foyer, and we all walk through the foyer all the time, so you'd sort of see who's getting it. You know, it's kind of exciting to get a package on retreat, and it was a, a very long retreat, and I wasn't getting any packages from anyone. And you'd say, but I would still always walk by and look and see, was my name there? And every now and then, I would have this thought, why doesn't L.L. Bean send me a package? <laughs> and it was just this wistful kind of little thought that somewhere in... Wherever they are, some person would go, well, Sally hasn't had anything for a while. Why don't we send a nice jacket to Sally? And, it, you know, I'd have to, what? They're not going to say, you know, I have to talk myself out of having this thought. And then the next time, a few days later, I'd walk through and this wistful thought would come, why don't they send me a package? It was really very strange. <laughs> And another way I often see these stories of, of delusion, the what were they thinking, are in what's called News of the Weird. Does anyone know that? It's in the, I see them in this magazine uh, newspaper called Funny Times, which is just where they take these real stories from life, and they're all of the ones where you go, what was going on here? And a big one, of course, is the big category they call least competent criminals. You probably know it. Well, I had to read this one because it's from Sacramento, and it happened now two years ago, 06. This is in one of these little stories. So Sudan Provost, 40, walked into the River City Bank in Sacramento, California on December 29th and, reported the Sacramento Bee, quietly announced to employees that he had come to rob the bank, but then handed a teller his driver's license and a money order to be cashed. The teller asked if he had an account, and Provost replied, This is not a joke. I have a gun. I do this for a living. 
However, he opened his bag to reveal that he had no gun and then asked for a tissue for his runny nose. (laughs) The teller said she didn't have one. Provost said he'd be right back and walked across the street to a drugstore. And by the time he had returned, the police were on the scene. He was arrested on suspicion of attempted robbery. <laughs> well, there's so many of those, of these, you know, robbers who go in and they write the, the d- robbery slip on the back of their deposit slip so it has their name and address. And it's like, what were they thinking? You know, there was some imagining going on that this is how these things work. And reality does not work in that way. We can also see it how we filter experience where we don't bring in aspects that are giving us the information, but we're refusing to recognize or acknowledge that they're there. We're so wanting to hold on to how we want the world to be. Again, another experience I had that I guess I'm a little ashamed to talk about. Um, it all worked out in the end, though. <laughs> I was in my early, in the early 80s. I, I left Australia and, and um, spent a lot of time in Asia, and um, quite a significant time of that. I went trekking. I did a lot of trekking. I did one long trek on my own to Everest Base Camp with just some people I met, not an organized thing at all. But then my boyfriend of the time came over, and he wanted to do more trekking, and he's always really adventurous. And at that time, um, in the Annapurna Range, there was one trek that was very traveled, the Jomsom trek. A lot of people did it. It was up and back. But they just opened the pass so you could actually do a loop. And so that's, of course, what we decided to do. But it was newly opened, so one whole side of it was very undeveloped. There were you know, a few tea shops here and there, but not a lot of facilities. And so we headed out, and he had brought a one-man tent. It was so small that we had to take turns getting undressed and getting in there at night and have an umbrella that we unfurled and that would kept our feet dry. So we were really on the basic side of trekking. It was not one of these supported things where someone's making you tea at the end of the day. We also somehow miscalculated our money and didn't have enough, and I was trying to sell film to people on the way. If any you were, that was me trying to sell the film, <laughs> Manang Trek. But anyway, we get to this place which is sort of the just before the culmination of this trek where you have to go to a certain altitude. It was about ten or 12,000 feet, and there was nothing there. You had to camp there, so we had our little tent, and then get up really early in the morning and go over this pass. It's about 17,500 feet. And then on the other side was the Johnson Trail that I had just spoken about. And on the other side, we had told, we had been told there was everything. You know, it was, there was restaurants and tea shops and apple pie and ice cream and all of these things. And we had been trekking for many days, if not weeks, through this really very simple, um, very, very rugged terrain, but with very simple accommodations and food. Dalbat, if you know Nepalese food, rice and lentils, pretty much every day. All, that's all we had. So there was a bit of, um, desire for what might be over the other side of that pass compared to what we'd been through for many weeks. And I had gotten sick on the way up. It was quite a, you know, it was a lot to to even get to this point. But as we were setting up camp that night at about 12,000 feet, Clive, Clive, that was my boyfriend, started to not feel so well. And I had been around a lot. I'd already done a long trek, and I kind of knew it was altitude sickness. But I didn't really want to know. So we put him to bed. I made sure he ate lots of drank lots of fluid, 
And in the morning, we had to get up really early and go over this pass. Well, he could barely wake up. I mean, I really had to rouse him and pack up the camp myself and get him organized. And then we had a choice. What do we do? Go over this pass. And if you know altitude sickness, the advice is always go down. Or do we go up to the apple pie and the ice cream on the other side? Well, I hate to say, because he was in no state, I chose the apple pie and the ice cream. And I just basically led him up this 17 and a half thousand foot pass. And there were times when he, you know, he just had his head down and his eyes closed and he was just following in my footsteps, you know, and it was snowy and icy and people were falling by the wayside. We'd heard of a person who died, you know, we were expecting to see bodies on the side of the road, but I didn't want to take this in, that this is actually, you know, what I was dealing with. Like, we have to go on. You don't turn back. It was like, if we turned back, it'd be three weeks of walking out. You have to go on. And I didn't want to take in that what the ramifications of that decision would be. Luckily, he made it. You know, I have a photo of us standing at the top of the pass, and he looked kind of dazed, and <laughs> push him over the other side, and then get down. And, and he was okay. But I, it was just so clear to me in retrospect how filtered my relationship to that was. I mean, it was really very dangerous what I did. And, you know, luckily it was okay. It was that invulnerability of youth a little bit. But it was such an example of filtering our experience. I did make up for a little bit later. He wanted us to go trekking in Pakistan later on, which is another whole deal. And he nearly died there. Again, wasn't my fault this time. And I, you know, did manage to get him to a hospital and take care of him. So I kind of made up for it. But this is what we do. When things don't meet our, our agendas, our ideas, our wishes, we ignore them. This is the functioning of delusion. It's so common. It's so uh, relentless. When I was exploring this theme, I was talking to some staff people a while ago and one of the staff, women on staff shared this great story. She said, um, oh, this is another way you know delusion is operating, when you hear yourself say, how hard could it be? <laughs> so she had this story where she really wanted to be a nanny in London. And when she applied for the job, one of the things they asked was, can you drive? And she just said, of course, even though she couldn't. And she, of course, had never driven on the other side of the road, as they do in England, but how hard could it be <laughs> to drive when you've never driven before on the other side of the road in London with a stick shift? And so they set her off on the first morning, sending, taking the kids to school or something, and there she is, getting at, in London traffic, not having a clue about anything with, you know, how hard can it be? And she said, luckily, what was amazing, this gentleman in a bowler hat and a briefcase just saw her kind of screaming in this car and jumped in and rescued her and gave her a little quick lesson on how to drive. But it's like, how hard can it be? <laughs> Very hard, apparently. But we don't think through the consequences of this. On retreat, we can see this functioning of delusion in what we call uh, VVs and VRs. Many of you know these tendencies of mind. VR, Vipassana romance. It's where out of the silence, not even knowing someone's name, they become the beloved and they're your soulmate, the perfect person, so sincere and kind and 
diligent and wonderful, and you just know you were meant for each other. You don't even know their name often, or even where they live. And this whole fantasy world can come up, and you know, some people even go on, and then we got together and divorced, all in the fantasy. You know, you go through the whole relationship. And the opposite, of course, is V V Vipassana Vendetta, where some poor person, through some little action, becomes the focus of all our aversion and irritation. And what happens in both these examples is we don't see the person for who they are. This covering of delusion filters how we relate to them. And for one, becomes perfect and lovely and everything good, and the other just can't do anything right, no matter how innocent they are in this. And just to see how this can operate. One of the things that can... um, lead us into delusion, and neutral experiences. We talked a little bit about this quality of Vedna, feeling tone, that's present in every moment of our experience, a pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, neutral. And we're so used to grappling with the pleasant and the unpleasant, the wanting and the not wanting. They're stronger, as I said, they, they come up more easily, I mean, they're more known more easily, that when something is neutral, something is more subtle, we tend to not notice. We tend to space out. And so when things get a little quiet, as they can do at this time of retreat, we can often actually consider that it's boredom or this is wrong. Something should be happening. You know, neutrality isn't a good thing. We can have this agenda about our experience, or just the mere fact of not noticing that it's happening. And so it's really important to bring awareness of neutral experiences into our mindfulness, to deliberately notice subtle arisings, like just the touch of your sleeve on your skin, or the slightest sound that you might normally pick up on. I think it's really important not to get stuck in the practice that It should be all about what's predominant. That leads us into delusion because we don't notice these subtler states of mind, these subtler experiences. So really important to practice noticing neutral and seeing if in that neutrality there's actually the possibility of some wholesome qualities like peace or calm or contentment. So it's a whole doorway of exploration that's really very central that both can bring in these wholesome qualities but also doesn't lead us astray in this chameleon nature of delusion and on into other unwholesome qualities. So this is a central aspect of our work with delusion. Ajahn Sumedho, who we've quoted a few times, has some a great teaching on this. He says... If you start with a vidya, you'll always end with dukkha. Basically, if you start with ignorance or delusion, you will always end up in suffering. If you start with wisdom, with clarity, there's a possibility it will lead to freedom and happiness, or it will lead to freedom and happiness. This is what he says. I encourage you to start not from a vidya, which is delusion, but from awareness, vidya, and wisdom, panya. Be that wisdom itself. 
rather than a person who isn't wise trying to become wise. As long as you hold to the view that I'm not wise yet, but I hope to become wise, you'll end up with grief, sorrow, despair, and anguish. It's that direct. It's learning to trust in being the wisdom now, being awake. Even though you may feel emotionally inadequate, doubtful or uncertain, frightened or terrified of it. That's great. Be the wisdom, not the person who is trying to be wise. Our practice cultivates wisdom. It is the practice of waking up and knowing what's happening in this clear and direct way in our internal experience and in the external experience, in the external world. And we really begin to see that our experience doesn't have to change. What changes is the way we relate to it, the way we connect with it, the way we understand it, the clarity we bring to that experience. And through that connection, we learn to trust ourselves. We learn to have faith that we know what's true for us. We're not caught in this web of confusion and delusion. We're not trying to mold reality to fit our experience, but rather coming in direct contact with it. And so it's not a fog of delusion that surrounds us, but we sit in the mystery of things, the mystery of the moment that has all potential in it for awakening and for confusion. And we can choose the awakening. We're not asleep. We're not lost. We're, we, we can wake up. That's why it's called waking up, enlightenment. Things get brighter. And so we connect to what is without filters. It doesn't mean that all experience then is wonderful or great. It just means we know it for what it is, with as much clarity and wisdom as we can bring to it. And I'll just finish with Ajahn Chah talking about this possibility, Ajahn Chah, the Thai forest meditation master. As I see it, the mind is like a single point, the center of the universe, and mental states are like visitors who come to stay at this point for short or long periods of time. Get to know these visitors well, Become familiar with the vivid pictures they paint, the alluring stories they tell, to entice you to follow them. But do not give up your seat. It is the only chair around. If you continue to occupy it unceasingly, greeting each guest as it comes, firmly establishing yourself in awareness, transforming your mind into the one who knows, the one who is awake, the visitors will eventually stop coming back. If you give them real attention, how many times can these visitors return? Speak with them here, and you will know every one of them well. Then your mind will at last be at peace. So let's just sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.